Um, I get to be um, the interviewer, the conversation partner, the host. Mm -hmm. What should we call it? <laughs> conversation partner. Conversation That's good. partner with Chris. This is Chris Parks, and um, I'm really, really thrilled to be having this conversation with her. But Chris has said to me, I really hate talking about myself. So, in fact, everyone who's done this has said the same thing. A number of you are still in the, in the room. So um, I probably should have started each of these discussions with this prayer, but we can pray it for today and just back it up for all the other ones. Okay, so why don't we pray? Holy God, humility is a Christian value that we hold dear. And we are also disciples who are called to shine your light in the world. And where we do that, where we reflect you, help us to tell that story and point to that light, that it would glorify you and equip others for an embodied faith today. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So I invited Chris to talk um, to us some about her vocation today as an attorney. Um, but before we get into that, I thought it would just be lovely to hear, um, if we didn't know you as a UPC member and we didn't know you as an attorney, what would you, how would you describe yourself? Like, who are you besides all that? Um, well, that was a hard one because this is like my busy time of year, so that all I can think of is work, but I did think of a mom. Okay. So I have two daughters who loved going to this church, friends with the Alexander's kids, and they're both in college now, so sort of a different kind of constant job and definitely the hardest job I've had, but um, they're great, and now the dog Cleo is really getting all of my attention. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm a member of Group 28. Let's see my, my group members. So we have kept our small pandemic small group going, and it's awesome. So that's my social outlet this time of year. Yeah. Okay, so you are a board member for the Center for Death Penalty Litigation, and you presently represent clients on death row. And you are also a lobbyist for disability rights in North Carolina and a huge advocate for children in our state legislature. So maybe give us a picture of what you do and why you started it. Like, mm -hmm. is this, is that some intense work? <laughs> Did yeah. you start out thinking, that's what I want to do. Yes, not at all. I think in high school, I think the la this is probably the last place I thought I would be. And um, I, I grew up wanting to be anything but a lawyer. And so I had all these different ideas. Um, but I, in college, I um, went my junior year to New York City and I traded options at the American Stock Exchange. And by trading options, I mean that we had little pieces of paper that you handed. That's how people traded back then. And I was really great at going to get pizza for the people we worked <laughs> with. Like, I was not doing anything except learning. But, 
And it was fun and exciting, but what I really began to realize was that I loved something different. And so I lived up on Union Square, and I'd take the train into the World Trade Center every morning. And I started buying breakfast for some of the homeless people there. There'd be the same people every day. And I just really loved that. And they, um, you know, I, I grew up in Southern Pines, and it's a small little beautiful town. And I just never knew poverty or mental illness or the kind of desperation that people have. I'd never talked to anyone over breakfast that was talking to someone different who wasn't even there, you know, like, it, and, and I really was drawn to that. Um, one of my professors at UNC had given me some books that I was reading about um, poverty and people living in poverty, and that's just as great as the, the job was and the people that I worked with, that's just kind of what I loved. So I decided that I wanted to do social work because I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I um, moved after college here at Carolina. I moved to Tucson, Arizona and did social work kind of stuff with kids, teaching and working with at-risk kids. And I really loved it, but it did not take long for me to realize, and those who know me will totally get this, I needed a little more control. I, I needed to fix big things and I just decided that maybe litigation was the way to do that. And so I ended up going to law school. <laughs> and um, so when I went to law school, all I wanted to do was legal aid. And legal aid is just um, helping people in poverty. And so my two summers of law school, I did landlord-tenant law and benefits and some family law. And that was my one goal. I was so excited. I was making it happen. And when I graduated, all the legal aides in the state were laying attorneys off. No one was hiring. And I just panicked because that was the only thing I wanted to do. And then this job opening came open at Prisoner Legal Services in Raleigh. And so they did both civil and criminal litigation in state and federal court. I got to do some immigration and some family law. And, um, and I really just grew to love it, especially the criminal appeals, because it, I found that I used a lot of what I was drawn to in the social work, but I also got to write about the Constitution and Supreme Court cases every day, which I thought was just so much fun. So I ended up liking the, um, the post-conviction work and as the kids were growing up, I came back to Chapel Hill and opened my own practice and started doing the death penalty work. And so I've been doing that here since almost 20 years now. And the way, I, it was a multiple question, so I'm just gonna kind of keep talking. Um, so, so I'm here doing death penalty work, and I was just telling our new members here that are new to our Sunday school class, who live at Carol Woods with Ellie Kinnaird, that um, Ellie had been a friend of mine at Prisoner Legal Services and was in the State Senate. And she wanted to work on a bill dealing with mental illness and the death penalty, a bill to exempt people with severe mental illness from the death penalty. And I see Debbie Dehoff here. She probably remembers we thought, and so Ellie brought me in to do this lobbying work. And we thought, well, this is going to be easy because we already had a bill that all these people before me had worked so hard on to um, exclude people with intellectual disabilities from the death penalty. So we used to call it mental retardation. That went through. There was a Supreme Court case. And 
So this bill would exclude people with schizophrenia or very severe mental illness that directly impacted their crime. And we thought, well, we just passed the other one. This should only take a year or two. And here, it's 2023, and I'm still over there working on it. <laughs> it's very sad. But that's how I got into the lobbying, and it just it sort of morphed into there's not a lot of people doing criminal justice lobbying, and so what I started doing just kept expanding and expanding. And so I now work for Disability Rights North Carolina, and I do criminal justice lobbying. Um, we do, then they were like, well, can you learn some education? So I'm doing education and guardianship, and now we just passed um, Medicaid expansion, so I got to do a little bit of all that. I know everyone give a huge, <laughs> it's such a big deal. And so it's kind of expanded, and I, I really like it because it's fast paced and different every day, and the things that I write at the legislature, like if you write more than a page long, and it is anything but bullet points, no one's gonna read it. So I'm used to writing these 100, 150 page briefs about the Constitution, and now I get to write bullet points, you know, in, in my free time. And so, yes, so that's, that's sort of how the career morphed. Well, so are you, are you while you do the lobbying work, are you continuing to represent clients? Yes. What's the balance? It, there is no balance, yes. That's why Group 28 is my only social outlet this time of year. Um, yeah, there's really not much Those balance this time of year. Two different full-time jobs. Yes, but the legislature should end the end of June. Like, it, it is supposed to be limited, in theory. Well, can you tell us, um, you said you grew up in Southern Pines. I'm curious... Um, this is another two-part question, sort of, how does your faith intersect with your work? Let's just start there, and then mm -hmm. the next one is about your spiritual roots and how they either prepared you or didn't prepare you for the job that, the two jobs that you do. Okay. Well, um, so I am a sucker for a really good sermon. I love speeches. I love sermons. And my minister growing up, Mr. Stone, in this Baptist church in Southern Pines, was just, he had the greatest sermons. And I still remember so much of what he said. And I, I sort of took it to heart, you know, I was this, like, this little kid. And, uh, you know, we had GAs and training union and Wednesday night and all these things. People that grew up Baptist probably. I was going to say, we don't know what GAs are. Yeah, GAs. <laughs> yeah, girls in action. Thank you. She knows. Yes. And uh, Carolyn Carpenos would know, too. Um, but I love those sermons. And I, I took them to heart in, like, the Matthew verse about when you – when you clothe someone, you clothe, you know, visit the sick, visit those in prison. And, and I, I took it to heart, but in Southern Pines, we, we just didn't see a lot of poverty. We didn't see homelessness. We didn't see crime. And so it was more of like a story or a parable or a, this is what we're supposed to do, but it's, I didn't just see it in the world. And I remember um, this one sermon that Mr. Stone had about sort of where people see God. And, you, you know, some people really feel like they see and experience God on a mountaintop or at the beach or, you know, in really beautiful places. And I remember him talking about someone from our church who 
had worked with someone that was homeless and you know was kind of holding him because he was sick and and really felt like he saw God's face in this homeless person and it stuck with me but I just never experienced anything like that like I didn't know what it was like to be with someone that was that broken and so once I got to college and started doing the work like I, I just felt very called to be with those people and it was really not like a burning bush kind of calling me but this this career that I have chosen and that I really love and care about it was like a compulsion I mean this is where I was supposed to be and I you know, I remember that sermon, and I, when, when I talk with my family about, you know, where do you see God, like, that's where I see him, in the prisons and in my clients' faces. And um, so it's really, I feel so lucky to have this opportunity. You know, God tells us to go visit the sick and go into the prisons, and I get to do that. Like, that's my whole job, and I just feel lucky to see these opportunities and to get to do what I think I'm supposed to be doing. So this is maybe a harder question, but um, it's such a beautiful image of you have experienced the presence of God in, in those who are experiencing this hardship, and yet those who are in that spot are also facing a consequence to their actions that um, perhaps your faith tells you isn't the right thing. Like what do we do with mm -hmm. um, capital punishment? What do you do with death row? Mm -hmm. when you're, especially when you're experiencing the presence of God in another human being. Well, I mean, I think what I can do is care about them, and they know that I care about them, and I've told them that I'm going to stick with them. Like, there's all these other careers that I think would be kind of fun, too, and diverge a little bit, but um, I told my clients that I would stick with them, and that's something that they've never had. And so one of the things that I have done, especially in the lobbying, is try to focus on kids and on issues that affect kids. Because what I see in my clients is that if we as their community hadn't sort of forgotten them or not taken care of them when they were kids, I really don't think that they would be where they are today. And just, you know, all of my clients have the same story and there's little differences. I have one whose mother let him and his sister live in an abandoned school bus in the woods for months because her boyfriend didn't like kids, and she'd bring them food when she had some. I had one whose um, parents set him in the middle of the highway when he was two because they thought he would be better off dead. I have one who has fetal alcohol syndrome and who had horrific abuse in his family and just still has nightmares all the time and, and just a hard time functioning day to day and hour to hour. And these are all of my clients. And I think, you know, if I could have gotten to them when they were kids, would they be here? And so a lot of the legislative work, especially, um, it focuses on juvenile law and juvenile crime. 
I got to go on Friday, and, and Debbie can probably tell us more about these facilities than I can, but I got to go tour what's called a PRTF. It's a psychiatric residential treatment facility. And so for kids who have severe mental illness and behavioral disorders who their parents can't take care of them anymore because they have outbursts, they're violent, they're just, um, their parents can't control them. You all have probably heard in the news about these kids that are sleeping in their DSS worker's office because there's no place to put them or their parents just have to drop them off at the ER. I mean, all over the state, kids are living in ERs for months because there's no place for them. And so one other option is these PRTFs. And so we went with a um, senator from Harnett County to tour two of them in Rayford. And I'm telling you, the rooms that they had for these children were worse than the rooms that I see in prisons. It was not clean, nothing on the walls, paint peeling off the walls, these beds that were like steel frames with these sort of nasty old blankets on them and barely even a pillow. Um, they are not getting school regularly. They're, the outside area that they had was maybe this big with this old basketball goal that was broken down and just pavement and it's like got a fence around it. I mean there's the prisons have better facilities than this and these are kids who very few of them have even had interactions with the law. They just have brains that are sick. And I, as I was coming um, back to Chapel Hill, I thought, you know, like especially here, we have this beautiful cancer center. And if a child has cancer, you know, they go to this hospital, they have a hospital school, they have visitors and balloons and people bring puppies to try to cheer them up. And they deserve all of that. But if a kid has a brain that's sick, we put them in these prisons. And how are they ever going to flourish? How are they, you know, they're not, they, they get therapy, the people said, like once or twice a week, and I think half of it's group therapy. So they're just medicating them, giving them medication to kind of shut them down, and not teaching them how to cope with their frustration or their anger or their hurt. And so I just feel like we're, warehousing these kids to become my clients in a few years. So. Well, and you mentioned, you mentioned in an earlier conversation with me, um, a law on the North Carolina books about kids. I think it was specifically kids mm -hmm. being irredeemable. Will you tell mm -hmm. us about, I mean, hearing where some of these kids come from and then maybe making choices that aren't great and mm -hmm. then they get labeled irredeemable mm -hmm. what does that mean for them and what are you doing to try yeah to well that's that is actually our law and so we have um like back in the 90s when there was this whole super predator thing about kids who were bad and um committed horrible crimes they the laws got really tough and we had laws that allowed children under 18 to get life without parole that means you're going to die in prison and so, luckily in the early 2000s, the case law started changing and the U.S. Supreme Court said it should be an exception to the rule that a child is sentenced to die in prison. But the standard that the judge has to find, so the judge makes a finding of fact, is that the child is permanently incorrigible or irredeemable. And so a judge in a robe, in a courtroom, looks at this child 
who's 13, 14, 15, 16 years old and says, you will never be better. You are irredeemable. And I just, it is hard to understand how anyone thinks that's okay, but as Christians and Christian leaders in the community, how can we, how can a judge tell a child they're irredeemable? I mean, there's lots of practical things that are wrong with that. Like, if I was running a prison, I don't want a bunch of kids in prison that are told, you know, no matter how much education you get or how much you change, you're never going to get out because then what incentive do they have to behave? But I think just from a spiritual aspect, to tell a child they're irredeemable is pretty awful. And so, um, and I learned about this because there's this... um, legislator from Guilford County who um, used to be a police chief and he came to me and said I think we need to get rid of this concept of life without parole I just don't think it's right and I said well I agree but can we start with kids because it's it seemed a little more manageable Um, and and there's a whole movement across the country a lot of states conservative states and not so conservative states are getting rid of life without parole for kids. Um, you know, the recidivism rate is almost zero. The kids are doing great. They've formed these, um, um, these like support groups, so they all support each other. They travel together. They have help for getting jobs. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really good program. So we're trying to get that passed here in North Carolina. But... Um, you know, it's always more challenging than I think it's going to be. Um, on that, following up on your comments, um, what what is it that what's the resistance to what you're trying to do with that particular mm-hmm. project you just mentioned? In other words, what kind of resistance and why is there? Is it, is it just is it financial or is it? No, it's the conference of district attorneys. I mean, that's the only resistance there is. And they, this is like the uh, sort of the legislate, the lobbying body for the district attorneys around the state. And they come in and tell the stories of the very worst crimes. And they say, we don't want this person to go home. And for practical purposes, the people who commit the worst crimes are not going to go home because you have to get paroled. I mean, it's not... The bill doesn't say, you know, you can serve five years and go home. The bill just says if you improve yourself, if you can show you're not dangerous to society, you have the opportunity to be reviewed. But the district attorneys come in and they tell about all the worst crimes and say, we don't want those people to ever get out. So it's, that happens a lot. Yeah. So they- do they they know that that's not yeah, that what does. happens? So <laughs> they're just using fear as a tactic yes. to. What do they get out of it? Well, I think practically what they get out of it is most cases are resolved by plea bargains, and if uh, it's sort of the reason that we still have capital punishment, I think because if the death penalty is on the table you can convince someone to plead to a life sentence and you don't have to go to trial it doesn't take a long time if there's a child and you can say we're going to give you life without parole or you can plead to 50 years it's a lot easier to get them to plea and i think that that's the practical but when you say child how old are these up to 18. 
18. Mm -hmm. okay. Now some states have made it 21, DC has made it 21, and that is really based on the science. They've gotten a lot of scientific input on the development of brains in children, and, but in North Carolina it's 18. Mm -hmm. So Carolyn suggested I ask you about the story of April Lee Barber. Mm -hmm. Will you tell us about her and why sure. you think Carolyn would want us all to know? <laughs> um, okay, well, so April in 1997, when I was just a baby lawyer, I had this client at Prisoner Legal Services, and her name was April Barber, and she was in prison for a really awful crime. She, when she, um, as she was growing up, both of her parents were in prison most of the time. And when her mother was not in prison, she was on drugs. And so her grandparents raised her. And they were very poor in Wilkes County. She was um, half black. She had a little bit of Native American in her. But, you know, that wasn't a great county then to be a black child. And they were poor. And she didn't have parents around. And so she had sort of a rough childhood. And when she was 13, she met this man who was 29, a white man, and they began dating. Her mother would pick her up from school and take her over there to be with him in exchange for drugs. And when she was 14, she got pregnant. And her grandparents were very upset. And they said that they were going to um, have him arrested and put in prison for a long, long time. And so he came up with this idea. He was. 29 or 30 at the time, and she was still, I think she was almost 15. He came up with this idea that she should um, burn the trailer down and that and in having this tragedy, everyone was going to come together. They would accept him into the family and they could raise their child forever in happiness. And, and she, I mean, she still talks about today um, just this like Hallmark movie moment where you have this tragedy and then everyone's on the lawn hugging and saying, we love you, we forgive you, and we love your baby too. And that's really what she thought she was doing. So this man brought her some gasoline and she set the trailer on fire, but her grandparents died. And so her lawyer, she was pregnant. Um, they brought her to central prison or to the women's prison in Raleigh where she was isolated and by herself at 15 years old and pregnant the whole time. Her lawyer visited her twice and told her she'd get the death penalty if she didn't plead guilty, so she pled guilty to two life sentences. Um, and the man uh, got put in prison too, but he died a couple years later of liver failure. And so she had the baby while she was in prison. She was shackled. Um, we just passed a law last year that made it illegal to shackle women when they're giving birth, when they're in prison. Um, and she had this baby and she had to give him to a family friend to raise. But she wrote to him every day while she was in prison. Um, there were years where she would see him a little bit more. Um, and after a while, the woman who was raising him, she was in Greensboro, wasn't able to bring him. So, but they, they always stayed pretty close. And he, when he turned 18, he joined the Marines, and he went into the Marines. He had them pay for him to go to college at Appalachian State, and he was on the football team and the track team. And he now is a, he's like a physical trainer, 
and he trains Navy SEALs in San Diego. He's doing great. Um, and so his life has really turned out well. Um, so April, we, we tried for years to find a way to get her out or to get her sentences reviewed and nothing worked in the court. But um, let's see, like a couple of years ago, Governor Cooper started this thing called the Juvenile Sentencing Review Board. Where, so a governor has a power of clemency or commutation, and a, any governor in North Carolina has the power to change sentences if there's a reason to do it. And so Governor Cooper set up this board to review really long sentences that were received by people as children. And there were, I think, about 300 people in the state that met the criteria. And April was one of his first cases that, that the board reviewed and that he reviewed and he let her out. And so she came home a year ago on Friday, March 24th last year. She lived with our family for a few months until, um, until she could find a place of her own, which is right around the corner from us. <laughs> but she's doing great, yeah. And it's, it's so funny because the whole time, I mean, I knew her before I even had kids, and she used to knit them sweaters and hats and blankets and scarves and they're all in our house and so it, it's it's neat that she finally gets to meet them and our house is decorated with all the stuff she's made me a long time ago um, and she's doing great she works for um, I don't know if you guys know the Charles house and they have a house where people live and so she's doing it's kind of nurses aid type stuff she goes and she bathes them and cooks for them and cleans them and takes care of them and then she does some work on the side just private work and she's really good at it i think that she would like to be an advocate and do a little more of what i do but i'm really trying to make her go slowly um, because you know she's been in prison since she's 15. and it's uh, we laugh a lot i'm like you're my third teenager because she really is 15 still in so many ways. So it, it takes a long time. She's 46, 47 now. Could I ask she, you one question? Mm -hmm. So how, she was in prison, when, how old was she? 15. Is that illegal? Yes. Yes, it is. Wow. Yeah. And she was in adult prison. I mean, one of the things that we've tried to do over the last several years is make it so that kids who commit not the very worst crimes like murder, but that most kids would stay in juvenile prisons just because it's so much safer. But if you have um, one of the most serious few crimes, you do go to adult prison. So you said that her first attorney threatened her with death row and mm -hmm. then got her two life sentences. How did you come into being her attorney after that person? She wanted to appeal. And so, but there just wasn't, I mean, the law allowed it. So it was unfair, but there wasn't really a legal error that we could win on. So we had to start asking for clemency and other sort of ways around so that. She reach it. How, does, how does someone like April find you? Well, back then I was at Prisoner Legal Services. Got so it. we got hundreds of letters every week from people in prison asking all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Did your kids, I mean, it's interesting you've had such a long relationship with her, and then she comes to live with you for a bit. 
did your kids, did you ever, I mean, she knit these things for them. Did, mm -hmm. did Bess and Virginia ever go see her in the, in the prison? Like, did no. you take your kids? They weren't allowed to because they were under 18. Okay. Um, so they didn't. But now some of my clients can call me. And um, it's funny now, I have one client in particular that loves giving Bess advice on life. And it, it's good because mostly it's, no, you got to listen to your mother. She's smarter than you think. So I'm like, here, talk to Rochelle. <laughs> but they feel like they know some of them. Yeah, he has another question. Uh, are you connected to the actual Innocence Program? Um, it is. Interestingly, you guys might, I'll just put another plug in for the DAs. Apparently there are some DAs that want to get rid of that because innocent or not, they're in prison and they think we shouldn't spend our money on that. I learned that this week. Um, I will, um, I refer people and I work with them a lot. Um, I've had a few people that I think are innocent. Most of the people I work with are not innocent, but I've had a few that I think are. And so I will refer them. You know, the, the law schools have innocence clinics, and then there's the Center on Actual Innocence, and then there's the Innocence Commission. So there are places to send them. Um, that made me think. So what do you think most helps with redemption um, and reform for people? Like, what, what helps if someone has made a choice for whatever reason, what helps them get to the place of healing and being able to re-enter society in a way that's fruitful? Hmm. You, you're not prepared me I know, for this I'm sorry. question. But when you said that, it's like, <laughs> yeah. that's not always the story. Like people, yeah. make, people make choices that aren't great. Yeah, I mean, it's not prison. Right. It's really not. We There's not good education, they don't, they're not learning skills, they're not, you know, they're in with other violent people and with gangs, and so I think it, it is very hard in prison to make it. And my clients that I have gotten out, you know, when you're in prison for years and years and you get out and don't have a dime, like how, the, I had a client who got out and, um, he was living in Snow Hill. It's in Greene County. It's sort of a suburb of Kinston. And I could talk for hours about Kinston and all the needs in Kinston. But um, Snow Hill, you know, there's no public transportation at all. There's no jobs. There's no health care. Like, I went to try to get him an ID card. And just to get, like, a driver's license kind of ID, the, the DMV comes to their entire county one time a month for half a day to the library. So you have, you know, so these people that are really poor, no one in his family has a car. Right. You have to find transportation to the next county over just to get a license. I mean, it is very, very hard. And it, it hit home when April got out. So here's, I have a lot of education and experience, and I had this whole group of people trying to help me, and it was really hard to get her IDs license to set up a bank account to do these basic things and she had all the help anyone could want so I just think it is it's a very difficult thing to re-enter and succeed okay um, what would you like the church to know about your work and how can the church support 
what you're doing in the world. Okay. I do have I thoughts on this. Time. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the only thing I could think of about what do you about my work, it's really hard. And I think about the other people that have talked in the Sunday school classroom, people that are working with addiction and teachers and doctors. It is really, really hard. And I just so appreciate the church. You know, I appreciate my church growing up. I, I always felt like I had a family wasn't just my mom and my grandmother. I had this whole family that really loved me and wanted the best for me and thought I could do anything. And that was so important for me and that's what I see in this church. And so um, for all those people that you know volunteer on Sunday nights and do confirmation and all the other volunteer work that none of us have time to do, I just, I, I want, I want that to continue. I think it's so important for these kids to, to feel like they can go fix the things that we haven't been able to fix. Um, because, you know, our kids struggle too. It's not just my clients. And they feel like they fail and they mess up and they're not good enough. And I think to be this loving church family that is always there for them is a really big, important deal. Um, I also think plug in for your sermon series, praying mm -hmm. for all the people that do the hard work mm -hmm. is a really big deal. And keeping the amazing sermons coming. <laughs> I, I love the sermons. And I'll, um, I, I remember I had this really awful case in Kinston, and my client was innocent. This is the one that went back to Snow Hill. And... Um, and we were having this hearing and there was some good and some bad and in the end there was this new DA that came in and just said really awful things about my client that weren't true he didn't even know the case like he had an assistant doing the whole thing but he wanted to come in and be a big shot and Bob Dunham and had a sermon the Sunday before we had this whole week-long hearing and it was about, um, it, it, the theme sort of was no matter what people say about you, you're a child of God. And then so we went to this hearing and my, my client is a very strong Christian. And I've, it's really something for me to go into this community. His family is so poor. They've never had anything. They have nothing but hardship and death and struggle, but they will all tell you how blessed they are and they have such faith. And it's really interesting just to try to learn from them. But I had talked to my client, Chris, about this sermon and I was like, you know, you've got to remember no matter what happens here that you're a child of God and he loves you. And, um, and so this DA came in and he was just so awful and it was all I could do not to cry. And I wrote this note to my client, and I quoted Bob Dunham's sermon, and, and he wrote back and said, thank you. And there was really just this peace that came over us, even though we lost that day. We won later, but we lost that day. But just hearing all these terrible things, and, and we really believed, because Bob Dunham said it, that he is a child of God, and that God loves him. So... It, it, th those, I uh, know. <laughs> the sermons matter. Yeah. Have you ever oh, yeah. uh, been in a 
is comes to the surface, where it's where it's it, it just comes out somehow, and maybe you sense God working uh, some sort of negotiation or assistance to the DA who may need a little guidance and mm -hmm. you and some hope and support for your client. Not really with the DAs, and like I mean, yeah, you you would, but like even in that case, w there was all this evidence that he was innocent. I mean, and I will just tell y'all because it is kind of interesting. The evidence against him. Do y'all know what it is to put roots on a person, like a root doctor in Eastern North Carolina? The evidence against him was a root doctor who said someone told him he did it and he believed it because of the roots. That was the evidence against my client that got him a life sentence for murder. And the DA did not believe he did it and neither did the judge. And the judge turned to the DA and was like, you need to make this go away. And the DA refused. The, the way we ended up getting him out of prison is the judge and the DA called the parole commission to let them parole him but he didn't want to lose in court. He didn't want a court to find the client innocent or overturn his conviction. So they sort of did the right thing in a backhanded way, but no. And sometimes, I mean, this, this um, senator that I was riding with on Friday, we, he's very religious and we were talking about it. And I, I sort of talked about, you know, just my faith and that I don't believe that if God were here, he would say, yeah, it's okay to kill some people. And, and he said, I agree, but I think there are some people that I'm just not sure about. And I think that's what most people would say. Some crimes are bad enough that I just think maybe the death penalty is the only punishment. And, and I'm glad to talk to them about it. I mean, sometimes I feel like it's not really my place to talk about my faith, like in a work setting. But um, you know, I just, if Jesus were sitting here instead of Meg, I can't imagine that he would say, well, let's choose a few of these people, and sure, the government could kill him. You guys decide. It's, it's not my father's place anymore. Y'all decide. And I don't think he would sit here and say, some of these children are irredeemable. I can't help them. You can't help them. They're just broken. And I just, and that is my faith, and I I, I understand that some people differ, and I guess we won't know until we get to sit down and talk to him about it. But I just kind of feel like this is one of those times where Jesus would come turn over some tables and say, you don't get to decide this stuff. That's my father's decision. So. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so turn to your neighbor. I'm so heavy. <laughs> and we're going to answer these questions. How does Chris's story <laughs> connect with you? I hope you can't connect with much of it at all. <laughs> like, my, my grandmother, Nana, was so excited that I was a lawyer, and she's like, can I give my cards, can I give your cards to my friends? And I was like, Nana, that is fun, but unless they're on death row, I just don't, I don't know how to help them. <laughs> so I hope that y'all can't connect much either. 